Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. I've been looking forward to this episode for a whole week, ever since we cooked up the idea in last week's episode. Uh, but don't worry if you've not heard last week's episode, There's uh, you're welcome to go and listen to it if you'd like, but, but this is going to be a new discussion. We really need to, in fact it's probably a bit overdue, go back and look at what what education is, what benefits does it bring, why do we hold education to be something important. Specifically, we want to look for things apart from increasing someone's employability. So that's where today's discussion is going to take us. My name's Cameron and I'm recording from Launceston, Tasmania. Yeah, g'day everybody, Ken here, uh, also from Launceston. And this is Luke, recording from Sydney. Wonderful. Hooray! I'm Lachlan, recording from Sydney. Now, I was reading a newspaper article in, I think it was The Conversation. I don't know if any of you uh, read it. It was in response to the Australian government's plan to basically hike up the fees on arts degrees and subsidise instead degrees more obviously linked to employment. And the discussion was by uh, someone who was looking at, who had done a degree in might have been economics law because they ended up working in investigating white-collar crimes. And he was commenting back that he remembers in his degree some subjects. Uh, one of them was on a really useful subject. It was it was practical. It was hands-on. It was it was learning how to use a particular piece of computer software that was this exactly the sort of software that people used when they were doing accounting. And so it was it was the real authentic thing. And then there was another subject in one of his law part of his law degree I think that was it was historical it was the history and philosophy of law and and it was all sort of airy fairy it wasn't really tied to anything he said the computer software he'd been trained in in his undergraduate degree was out of date within three years in point of fact it was a piece of software that had been written before computers had a mouse so it was it was by today's standards very primitive and, and the pace of technological development quickly outstripped any relevance he'd gained from that subject but the sort of more philosophical subject was filled with ideas that he uses every day and the comment of the article was uh, it's very presumptuous to assume that you can know if what you are learning will lead to better employment prospects we should just teach people to think we we need to think of education in a broader sense so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at what does education bring us in a, in a broader sense. Uh, and I, I don't have any particular order in mind. We've each brought some ideas that we can talk about. Locke, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I like that, um, that opening story. It reminds me of um, this semester at university. I've been teaching some medical radiation science students who need to learn a bit of physics about some of the radiation tools used in medical treatments and diagnosis. And I've gone out of my way to labor this point. The pieces of equipment in hospitals today that they need to be able to use will be obsolete in 10 years time. There will be entirely new treatment technologies that are currently sitting in research laboratories, but will be turning up in hospitals and clinics. And if the degree that they are getting from university is to be useful at all, it has to be covering some of the basic principles rather than the, the particulars of, of any one instrument. So, yeah, it, it comes up all the time. And in that context, I think that education has value as being like a gym for the brain. This is something that, that I've thought a bit about and I'm, I'm fairly passionate about. In our society, we've reached the point where we recognize the value of physical activity. It's part of living a holistic, healthy life. And a lot of our urban, modern so social lives are very sedentary, not very active. And so we have Fitbits on our wrist and we have apps on our phone and we have gyms you can pay memberships to, all sorts of things to create artificial activity, which sounds ludicrous, of course, for most of human history, where there was more than enough activity for most people. But one of the things that I think we're gradually catching up with, but we're, we're lagging behind, is the idea that mental activity is equally part of a healthy, holistic approach to living a meaningful life as a full human being. And there's, there's 
things that can be done. You can do Sudoku and play crosswords in the newspaper, and those are great activities. But I think there's almost nothing better than learning something new uh, when it comes to this gym for the brain idea. In fact, I observe that if I try and watch videos on YouTube or various things, I encounter ads for Udemy.com, Masterclass.com, The Great Courses Plus, and any number of other online places offering education that is completely disconnected from employability. It is literally learn about something new because it is interesting and because doing that is just good for you. I think there's a there's another aspect uh, to that, and it does in fact help your employability because one of the things that's important about education is to learn how to learn uh, so that when the software does go out of date, when the new instrument uh, is implemented in the hospital, um, and indeed you talked about knowing some of the principles, but it may well be that in 10 years' time, uh, the research uh, will show that those fundamental principles um, uh, don't apply uh, any longer. Uh, but what you need to know is how to learn the new principles, mm -hmm. the new instruments, the new machines. So uh, education is learning how to learn. And it's learning. It's learning that it is actually worth putting in the effort. So... So it's a bit like it's a bit like my early bushwalking experiences were not very fun. My kids managed to catch a whole bunch of genes from my wife's side of the family, and they, my eldest in particular, just loves exor physical exhaustion, and he didn't get it from me. Uh, but one thing I have learned through successive experience is is that going to the effort of climbing a mountain is worth it when you get to the top. And I had this conversation with the grade nine students I was on camp with, and they were feeling pretty low. Uh, and they said, "How are you coping?" Because we were going around the circle, and it's like, "What, you know, how are you feeling?" Um, it had been a pretty long day, and they were pretty exhausted. And and you know, how are we going to get through the next afternoon? And they asked me. They said, "How are you going to get through it?" And the first thing that came jumped into your mind was, uh, "Well, actually, I've done this enough times before to know that if I don't climb the top of the mountain now, I'll regret it when I get home. And if I do, I'll enjoy it." And the same is true for learning, learning a musical instrument or mm. learning a, a piece of poetry that you like or learning uh, learning to be a better public speaker or learning about some fascinating history topic. There is just genuine hard work and it, it's, it's a lie to tell people that learning is always fun. Uh, but you, you're not just learning how to learn, you're, you're learning that it's worthwhile learning. I, I want to pick up on one of your examples there, Cam, the musical instrument, because I think this is something that's not everyone learns to play a musical instrument, but it is a fairly widespread experience, especially for children. And most people do not think when they sit down and practice their scales in grade three on the piano, oh, when I grow up, I am going to earn my income as a professional piano player. So actually, in society at large, we are already quite comfortable with the idea of education dis disconnected from employment. And I think that music is one of those areas where we most readily accept this. I think also it's a classic example of learning how to learn. Um, I used a, I learned a musical instrument and it taught me the discipline hmm. uh, of of learning, uh, and one of the things that I use um, is to practice a passage, uh, break it down into little bits, uh, get that little bit right, uh, play it through ten times perfectly at that speed, and not move on until I have played it ten times perfectly at that speed. But Ken, this is this is what's so demoralising about then becoming a teacher, because despite all the fancy words that are used in education we still teach students i'm getting this is one of my hobby horses we better stop soon or i'll, I'll go for the whole 50 minutes <laughs> i could listen we teach students like as if the most important thing is that we can prove we've taught it we don't teach students in a way as, as if as if it matters that they learn it and the reason mm. we do it that way is because it genuinely is the most important thing to be able to prove we've taught it if a parent complains or if the government complains, you need to be able to say you covered all the content. 
Um, so we have we have a student who gets sixty five percent say on a fractions test in grade seven, and they get told they're on a B minus or a C plus maybe, and they're getting a third of the questions wrong. That's a pretty high proportion. We don't make them go and do it till they get it right. And and if I give my students a t- maths test and the class does poorly, and I say, well, would you all like to do a retest? I'm expected to supply them with a different test, the retest round. Otherwise, it's not fair. Otherwise, it's not. But but every sports person knows that if you get something wrong, you repeat that skill till you get it right. If you get every musician knows if you if you get a bar of music wrong, you repeat it till you get it right. You don't play a similar piece of music. You play that piece of music. <laughs> why why can't I make my students mm. do the same test until they get ninety percent of it right? That reminds me, Cam, of when we were in primary school, Locke and I, and we were were going through my brother's books and we found The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And we were about nine or ten, I think. Yeah. And this is... I don't know how it was for you, Locke, but for me, this is how I learned to read, properly read, was that I read through The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings once, and I understood maybe a third of it. <laughs> it was yeah. it, there were a lot of words there that I didn't get, um, and there were a lot of concepts and phrases and story. You know, a lot of it, it went past. I remember very distinctly not being really clear on what had happened the first time through, but the second time I read it, I got a lot more, and by the third time I was starting to appreciate some of the the mastery of language that had gone into writing you know it's exactly your point i did not learn to read better by reading three different books i learned to read better by reading the same book three times yeah yeah well i mean connected to that story luke i distinctly remember in my mind even more vividly than the lord of the rings was you and i challenging uh, each other to see who could read the narnia books as in the entire series the most. I and I, I very clearly remember that I got to the seventh full read through before essentially giving up because you were a fair bit ahead of me. <laughs> I don't know how many times you'd read it through. But um, it was it was the same kind of thing, wasn't it? It was this this repetition, uh, this building of a skill. Um, in that case, the readings were in pretty enjoyable, but they definitely got more enjoyable. So that looking back, uh, you know, that first time reading through was a bit laborious, a little bit like the the, the, the ascent on the way up anything. the mountain cam and not really the joy of being yeah. at the top. Yeah. Mm. The, the, there is a paradox here too. And while what you say is right, uh, repeat the skill until you get it right, there is also an indirect effort uh, that has benefit for learning. And again, music provides a great example of this and you referred to scales. So practicing mm. the scales uh, yeah. is in fact not making the music, but it's creating the muscle memory uh, and it's it's creating the skill and the ability to reproduce those scales in the music when the music requires it. Um, and uh, I remember, look, don't ask me where I got this from. I read a James Galway, I play the flute, um, and I read a James Galway autobiography um, uh, when I was a teenager. It may have come from that. It may have come from uh, some other lecture of his that I read or heard. Um, but he describes playing the flight of the bumblebee um, and he can play it using circular breathing. And my recollection is, I may have the figures slightly inaccurate, but the concept is right. If he could play flight of the bumblebee in a minute and a half, he was okay with his technical work and scales. If he took more than a minute and a half to play Flight of the Bumblebee, uh, then all other music was set aside and two weeks of scales and technical work. Mm. Um, uh, and nothing else uh, was required. Um, and and, and you, you talk about the mountain climbing. Um, it's all well and good to say, I'll climb that mountain lots of times and that will give you uh, what you want. But there's another way of, uh, uh, if you're not able to climb the mountain every day, uh, then you probably better do quite a bit of walking um, mm. uh, away from the mountain before you actually get there. Mm. Uh, so, so, and I think that has a. Uh, 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 we need to recognise that in the spiritual life mm. as well. 
I was going to say that, Ken. I was going to ask how um, this is a really interesting jumping off point to go in that direction uh, for a while, because what does that mean? Uh, I think there's lots of things that it means. Uh, I think this is one of the things that is in people's minds when they advocate for, uh, for example, um, regular devotional time, um, which is certainly a, a sort of spiritual discipline type of thing that I've heard uh, many, many times. Um, maybe even things like tithe as a regular activity could be seen as one of these kind of parallel uh, practicing hmm. techniques. It's generosity training. Um, yeah, yeah, generosity that's good. Uh, the, your devotional time thing is an interesting reference, Locke, because uh, it is possible to do study poorly. It's possible to do study in a way that's genuinely not training for the brain. And I, I, I have lots mm. of students who will come to me and they'll say, uh, you can always tell a good student because the student comes to you and says, I don't understand quadratics. The poorer student, and it's not, I don't mean poorer by ability level, I mean poorer by, they're poorer at being a student, comes to you and says, I can't do this question. Show, show me how to do this question. And you start to explain quadratics to them and they say, no, I, look, I, I, I've never really got all that. I just want you to show me how do I do it? Uh, and some students I've seen like this devote huge hours into study and they don't get better at mathematics. They, they don't really want to know the maths. Some of them very sincerely want good grades. Some of them very, very sincerely want to improve their employability, but they don't really want to know the maths. And the students who come to you and say... This quadratics thing, what's it all about? What does it mean? And who will let you unpack the topic in three different ways and they just like seeing it from three different angles. So they're the students who are who are the best student. They invariably do end up with better marks, but it's because they are better stu- they're better at being a student. And when we do our, our study within a church context, there is a very real temptation to say, think thus, 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 and thus. This is how you do this. This is how you solve this problem. 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 You don't have to think too much about why or ask deep questions or you certainly ought not expect to go through life being puzzled or bewildered. And I, I think that one... And you leave all of those whys and purposes in God's hands. Yeah. He understands yeah. it. He's got the tapestry, the big yeah. picture. All you have to do is follow the rules. Well... Uh, if we're trying to follow Christ as well as follow the rules, I think there's every biblical precedent you could point to suggests that he's very capable of surprising us at a regular basis. Seems to go out of his way. And one passage is, my favourite one is in Lazarus, which we've talked about in previous episodes, where Christ says to the disciples, this sickness won't end in death. And then two verses later he says, oh, by the way, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad he's died because it will help you believe in me. Now, that is obviously provocative. Like, he is he's deliberately confusing them for a learning experience. And if, if we approach something like devotion and the spiritual disciplines with the expectation that this will raise questions for us, that if, if, if we never leave a passage of the Bible genuinely conflicted or out of our depth or uh, unsure of what it means... That, that it's possible we're, we're missing it. Maybe we're not doing the brain training and the spiritual training that we think we are. Yeah, good catch there, Cam. I agree. Would it be fair to say that the process of learning involves encountering things that you don't know? <laughs> um, I guess so, Luke. <laughs> it's, it's, not an, it's not a contentious statement, right? It's... it's... We, we can all agree on that? Yeah. I, I, I feel quite comfortable with that yep, statement. I'll give that one a tick. <laughs> it, well, I'm glad, I'm glad you all do. But I, the reason I say it like that is because as you're talking about that topic, Cam, it occurred to me that sometimes the way I think we teach in a religious context is, is, is done in a way that seems to not understand this basic, hmm. this basic truth about learning. You know, you, you can't go and learn something if you think you know everything already. If we are going to spend eternity getting to know God better, that suggests that there will be always many things we don't know. There will be continual stream of new ideas. Hmm. I think that's one of the wonderful... Uh, have we referred to this in the podcast previously? Uh, but in Revelation, uh, the picture of the um, 
the elders and the uh, the creatures around the throne and in in the in the throne room. And the, the fascinating thing about it is when you read it, um, all they do, all day, every day, for eternity, is bow down and say, "Holy, holy, holy." Now, one might think, well, that's going to get boring after a little while. But I suspect that the reason that happens is that they are constantly amazed at some new aspect of God that they have just discovered. Hmm. And Hmm. all they can do is respond and say, wow, that's incredible. Um, and there's an eternity of that growth. That reminds me, Ken, of something I read just today, an article about um, why why it is that people in, in modern life feel so stressed and time poor. And one of, the, one of the points it made was that we too easily sort of seek out distraction um, and diversion. And there was apparently a study done. I didn't look up the details of this, but I rather want to in which it was found that most participants would rather administer electric shocks to themselves than sit in <laughs> silence with their own thoughts. Yeah, it, I've heard of this It's a fascinating too. thing. I've heard of this too. And, and you, look at, you look at kids poring over their phone, and if I'm honest, me poring over mine, and yeah. they are not trying to have fun. They are trying to help the moments pass quicker. So it doesn't really matter that whether is they're so enjoying. True. And so we lim- we have this short time on Earth, and we're all busy trying to ensure it passes the very quickest it can. I specifically uh, deleted my Facebook account because I wasted time flicking through it. Um, I uh, don't use a Twitter account and don't have the app on my phone. My Instagram account is now unavailable to me because my email was hacked and I can't recover the Instagram account. Uh, So I don't have that. I have no form of social media on my phone. uh, And yet I find myself staring at it. Um, If only perhaps to press the button to look at the bank account balance or, uh, you know, something inane like that or to, or to just check the emails that say already updated just now, uh, but to see whether they might update again. <laughs> it's it's a surefire sign that you're getting too tired and should just go to sleep. I, I occasionally catch myself saying things to my wife like, there's just nothing interesting on the internet anymore. <laughs> the, it, the internet's run out of interesting <laughs> the things. The entire that, internet. That, You've that seen cannot all be it. true, but what it does mean is that my brain is way too exhausted to actually grapple with any interesting thing, and I'd better just to go to sleep. I'm just as guilty of the same thoughts, Locke. And um, I didn't think, I haven't thought to myself the response which I should have. But hearing you say it uh, made me immediately think, well, uh, if the... If the internet has run out of interesting things, thank goodness there's a real world out there that's still got a few, <laughs> a few interesting things left. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah. I'm a guilty, a guilty, if not more so than than well, any of you. I, I mean, I think it's I think it's a temptation for everybody or a tendency that we all have. The the point is to be aware of it and to take conscious action to train yourself away from it. Mm. by which we come back to education. And I resent the fact that the people who design phones and who design apps uh, have huge teams of psychologists, uh, behavioural psychologists at their disposal, and they are competing for my attention. I'm, I'm fighting for the moments of my own life, and it's me mm. pitted against... I, I feel very inadequate to the task. It's me pitted against large teams of highly paid, highly trained, highly educated even... Um, professional psychologists. Professional yes. psychologists who are determined to capture as much of my attention as possible, and I resent it. There's a great movie out recently called The Social Dilemma, if, if any of you have seen or heard of it. I, I've, seen, worth, I've seen a bit watching. of it, yeah. And, and one, of the, um, one of the people interviewed in, in that uh, movie uh, is a, an executive whose very job was that uh, with one of the social media giants. I don't remember the particular one. But he described how he would go to work every day and design the app so that it would capture people's attention. And yet, even though he knew that's what was happening and that's what was doing, and he had designed it that way himself, he was unable to resist the urge 
to use the very thing that he had designed. <laughs> Do you know what it is? It's the is it Soma, the drug from Brave New World? It Probably, is. yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, I, um... that's what's what's coming into place. We, we're running out of time. We've so far only got through Locke. So, Luke, I was going to say, true. this is maybe a good point to introduce mine, which I will Do adjust <laughs> slightly. Yeah. Um, and, and then we can say our closing remarks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I was going to talk about how the, the idea that, that, um, that education is fundamentally valuable because it teaches you to discern falsehood, to discern truth from falsehood, which in the world that we live in is, is more important than ever. But I would also add to it at this point that it education is vital for teaching us how to question our assumptions and perceive that which is important and that which is unimportant. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's so much that we can busy ourselves with. You can build entire well-paid careers on things which are unimportant. Mm. <laughs> and you can spend your whole life doing it. You can make yourself incredibly busy doing unimportant things. But surely um, the fact that it was well paid is what's important. Gosh, no. No, in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a great comedy sketch in one of the moments I was wasting on YouTube where they were discussing the death tax in the US. And, and it was someone really laying into the death, ta- death tax in a, in a very satirical way. And he's like, you know, this is, this is appalling. This taxes money twice, once when it's earned and once when people die. This, this goes against everything that Americans hold dear. Money. Uh, and then he just goes on with the rest of the talk. It's, there is only one thing. <laughs> just money. But, Luke, I think you make a really good point. In, in fact, one of the problems with our society, I think, at the moment, is that we do not uh, seek to discern truth. Mm. We simply seek to find support uh, for our preconceived notions of right and wrong. Mm. Um, and, and I think education is really important uh, to make us alert to the fact that that is what we are seeking to do much of the time. Do we ever do it in a church context? <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's an interesting aspect here. I think if you're going to be discerning truth from falsehood, then, then, you, then you have to be starting from a point where you're accepting the possibility that your idea is wrong which is the questioning the assumptions yeah you have to be open to the idea that maybe the idea maybe what you are thinking is the falsehood not the truth and the reason that education is so powerful here is because when you learn something new it reminds you that there are things out there that you do not know but that other people do right because if you learn something new then you've learned it presumably you've been taught it by someone who does know it um, and you, you have been confronted with your own state of not knowing a thing. And, and the process of education, the process of learning is, is a, sort of, to at least some degree, rectifying that situation mm. of ignorance. Well, I, no, you know what? I think it's interesting. Definitely to rectify, rectify it in the sense of you're learning things. That's the obvious one. But I think maybe something more important that education does is it gets you comfortable with the idea of not knowing things. Mm. Because if you're uncomfortable at the thought that you don't know something, then you have to live your entire life pretending, and it is pretending, that you know everything you think you know. And you definitely don't. Right? Um, And that means it's impossible to change your mind about anything, which can get you stuck in all sorts of really uncomfortable uh, logical fallacies. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Pilgrim's Regress, and it's a very good book. Um, it's modelled, it's an allegory like Pilgrim's Progress, but it begins with someone born into a church who leaves it and then goes seeking truth and ends up coming back to the church but with a very different understanding of what it's actually all about. It's a really interesting journey. On the on the journey he meets various people and one of the people he meets is Reason and he's very concerned about something and he says, oh, I, I just need to know, is it is it this way or that way? You know, and, and Reason says, well, what, what evidence do you have? And, uh, and the main character, John, says, well, I, I don't have much evidence. And Reason says, well, in that case, you, you cannot make up your mind. 
And John said, but but if I, if I had to make up my mind one way or the other or else I'd die, and Reason says, well, then you'd die because, <laughs> because you can't, because you don't know. Um, you're just going to have to be happy with not knowing those things. The, the, I mm. mean, that is a, it does not surprise me to find that C.S. Lewis has, has made that point somewhere in his writings. It has been one of the great comforts to me in recent years to realise how much I don't know and how good it is that I don't know it. It's not always helpful to know how it isn't. Uh, um, I mean, the example that I would give of that is as a junior barrister, a baby barrister, um, I would rush in um, uh, with a degree of confidence. And sometimes it's that confidence that uh, can be persuasive. After many more years of experience, I could see all the traps and the pitfalls of uh, a particular strategy uh, that made me much more hesitant to take it and perhaps therefore less effective because apparently less confident. Nah. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to interject here, Ken, because I, 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 this <laughs> speaks exactly to my point, which overlaps with Luke's. The, the, the value, uh, the two things I, I, I thought of, uh, the first was education is important apart from making you employable is because education is is a very useful tool for making ourselves less confident. And I, I know mm. what you said, Ken, that confidence often brings success. I don't know if it on balance brings success. I think that mm. some of the dumbest things that I've ever done uh, were done in moments of supreme confidence. And I, I have witnessed some incredible examples of this in the classroom. Absolutely amazing. I, I was teaching in grade seven class once and a student asked me what I earned. And I get asked this quite often. I'm not quite sure why. But uh, I said, well, look it up. Just do a search for Launceston Church Grammar School Enterprise Agreement. And it's it's there. It's about 80 pages long. And the bit that they wanted to know was in a table in an appendix on the last page. And they didn't bother <laughs> to read the table of content. So that they quickly lost interest. But they, they said, just uh, no, tell us how much you earn. I said, well, how much do your parents earn? And this child, who had two siblings at the school, thought very seriously for a moment and said, oh, I don't know, probably 20000 a year. Now, their parents were paying well over $20,000 a year in school fees. And, <laughs> and this is the same student who would very loudly ask in the classroom, why do we have to learn maths? When is it useful? They were, they were confident that they knew how the world worked. And they... They didn't know. I once had a you'll like this, Luke. I once had a student who was doing grade eight algebra, and I overheard them. They were very foolishly complaining about maths class opposite my office, and I could hear them from in, in my office. And this student said, "Ah, oh, I don't know why we have to learn all this X and Y stuff. I'm never going to need this. I'm going to be an architect." <laughs> <laughs> Well, if that student of yours is listening, let me tell them that in my first year as an architect, I studied differentiation and integration and advanced geometry and several engineering subjects well. uh, that were all based around, <laughs> around using integration and differentiation to calculate which, which load probably bearings. used X, Y's and Z's. Yeah. There, were, there, yeah. were, I mean, there were not just X, Y's and Z's. There were other letters written in different languages. Yeah, that were very hard to remember. So you know that's it's really interesting when you're when you're talking and spending your professional life with with people have and of course misplaced teenage confidence is a bit of a you know stereotype, isn't it, of of, of people at that age, and and it takes a lot to drum them out of. And and I, whenever we do a unit on finance, I always tell my students, uh, you're not actually going to remember any of these formulas in ten years' time, but I don't really care. Well, there is something you will remember. You will remember that all of this, anything involving compound interest, especially annuities and um, you know, investments and you know home loans and whatever else, it is all more complicated than you think. It is easy to get ripped off. Your intuition doesn't work. You cannot rely yourself to guess the answer to these problems. If you can remember that in 10 years' time, if all you can remember is that this is a lot harder and more complicated, and the best way to teach you that is to make you do it, 
once. That is going to be an educational experience which will serve you incredibly well uh, for the rest of your life. Reminds mm. me of a um, an American comedian, Jeff Allen. He t- talks about his family a little, and in particular his uh, 15-year-old son. And he says that he uh, uh, was going to ring NASA um, and uh, tell them that they simply had to employ his 15-year-old son because he knows everything. <laughs> Good. Yes, it's certainly not teenagers that are the only ones guilty of thinking they know everything. Mm. As I'm sure Cam has had to deal with parents, so he knows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's actually interesting glue here that ties that observation, Cam, back to Luke's observation about, uh, about truth versus falsehood and the ability to change your mind about something. So there's a, a fairly widely written about concept uh, in sort of human cognition, and it's called the illusion of explanatory depth. So here's one one definition of it. The illusion of explanatory depth is the incorrectly held belief that one understands the world on a deeper level than one actually does. And um, okay, taken to its extreme, it's a kind of it's a kind of mental disorder in a sense. But we are all sub- subject to this because our our we in our just ordinary living. I avoided saying daily. I avoided saying daily lives, Ken, for your benefit. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> we encounter we encounter so many phenomena that are complex, mm. and that we actually only have a very shallow understanding of. But we tend to assume we understand better, even things like weather patterns. Yeah. And the con- the connection to changing your mind is that it, this has been written about and has been presented as one of the techniques that is capable of changing people's mind. And you can do this in a non-threatening way. Someone says some conspiracy theory, let's say about the weather, uh, to keep things nice and safe and and not hit any hot topic buttons. And just asking a couple of questions to dig deeper. So it's okay, well, why does it do that? Or how does it do that? And um, in a non-threatening way, bring people to the recognition, to their own self-recognition, that their that their explanatory depth was a little bit of an illusion, and that they maybe don't quite understand how it works as well as they thought they did. That is a very important and, as I say, non-threatening if done right. That is a that is a vital tool to be able to open someone up to potentially changing their mind. Um, I mean, you pick a pick an issue like climate change. People have strongly held beliefs, but if you ask a couple of deep questions about how they picture it actually working. Uh, I think most people, um, even myself, mm. uh, with with training in physics, uh, I've encountered this once, chatting with a colleague, and we were trying to work out exactly why it is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere alters the transmission of heat. You know, and we realised that what we th- we thought we understood something and we didn't. That's the illusion of explanatory depth. A good education teaches you to love those moments. That's what, yes, to get comfortable with not 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 just comfortable, but excited about yeah. not knowing oh. things. Yes, and when you meet something where where it just blows your mind, and we went in the episode where we talked about chance, and it was the first episode of this season where we talked about the fact that randomness and and order are not so separate. When I first learned that, that was a real pivotal moment. And mm. and that really mm. blew my mind. Other other really, you know, just quaint ones. One that I heard, which I know, Locke, you've sp- spoken about before, uh, to me, and we've talked about in with reference to Bayesian statistics and and um, various biases and priors and other fun things. But in World War Two, when they were trying to work out where to put armor plating <laughs> on aircraft, they analysed all the oh, aircraft that had that's returned. That's a great story. It's a good story, and. You think you know the answer to this. They analysed where all the aircraft came, where the bullet holes were in all the returning aircraft. And you would find that some places the aircraft would be shot up badly and some of them wouldn't be shot up badly. So then they applied all the armour plate to the parts of the aircraft that were not shot up badly. And the reason is that, in point of fact, the the bullets are distributed evenly. Aeroplanes got shot up over fairly equally across the whole airframe. If the aircraft had returned, then it must have been shot in an inconsequential place. Uh, so if there yeah. was if there was a spot that had been 
consistently missed in the returning aircraft, that must be a crucial spot. And the aircraft who were being shot there were not returning. And when yes, and when when you get that reverse, when you think, I thought I understood how this was going to go, and it went somewhere completely different. And then in hindsight, it's obvious that it should had to be that. Mm. That's so much fun. That's so invigorating. Yeah, I think I think that that's true. The the power of education is is to like with climbing the mountain cam because it's not always fun to to realize your level of ignorance about something that you thought you understood that may not be fun a bit like climbing the mountain may not during the climb be fun but the mountain climbing experience is lodged in your memory as a rewarding experience because you got to the top and that experience of exhilaration and the view and the excitement and the feeling on top of the world that's that's the dominant thing and education helps lock you into that tune you into that i've got a bible passage i'd picked out lock to tie into into my idea and we are running out of time a little bit so i might try that and slip it in this idea that confidence particularly even in a religious context is not we're not called to a life of confidence we're called to a life of faith and even then it's not faith in a particular set of doctrines it's faith in a person the person of god and and god reserves the right to be surprising and there's so many passages where people resent god yeah jonah's a classic one uh Mm. or job or job uh or the pharisees complaining to christ about him seeming to open the doors to non-jewish people you know there's so many and and we've talked about a lot of other passages in acts uh but one of my favorite stories that i think shows wisdom i think this shows someone who has had enough genuine experience of God is the story of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 28 when he's confronted with a false prophet. So Jeremiah's been parading around uh, saying that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Uh, And uh, at the start of Jeremiah uh, 28 it says, in the fifth month of the same year, the prophet Hananiah, son of Azur, who, who was from Gibeon, said to me, to Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. So Jeremiah is confronted publicly by this Hananiah bloke. And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I'll break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had removed and took to Babylon. I'll also bring back to this place the king and all the other exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is in direct contrast with the message that Jeremiah believes he has heard from God and has told the people. And Jeremiah's on the spot. He's in front of everyone. And he's just been contradicted flat out. What's more, there's no record that God steps in to arbitrate between them. God does not send a Jeremiah a message at this time. Later on, Jeremiah gets a message that says from God, God says to Jeremiah, hey, by the way, that Hananiah bloke was completely up the wrong tree. He's barking mad and and he's spreading dangerous disinformation. But in the moment when Jeremiah is confronted with this idea, he gives an incredibly wise and tactful response. He says, he says uh, he, Jeremiah replied to the prophet Hananiah before the priests and all the people and everyone who was standing there. He said, amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words you have prophesied. And bring the articles of the Lord's house and all the exiles back to this place from Babylon. Nevertheless, listen to what I have to say in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. From early times, the prophets who preceded you and me have prophesied war, disaster and plague against many countries and great kingdoms. But the prophet who prophesies peace will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true. Hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think there's so much wisdom and tact and that response... There's no, there's no, uh, hopefully through a life of talking with and living with God, Jeremiah, you know, hopefully God's spirit was at work in him. But the very way the story is written very much suggests that Jeremiah had to come up with that in the moment. And it seems to suggest that Jeremiah was was genuinely open to the idea that it is possible that what I think is wrong. Mm. And I hope you're right. Yeah, even to say, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, I hope I'm wrong is something that um, 
you know, if you think you know about something that is bad, mm. you should be able to say, I hope I'm wrong. Mm. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know whether this is worth saying or not, but uh, is it? would it be nice for the Adventist church to say, we think there's going to become a time of, of trouble and real trial and tribulation, but we hope we're wrong. You know, with any luck, it'll be like Jonah. Our message will be sufficiently effective that the thing we're saying will happen won't happen. Because we do follow a God who responds to human circumstances and who has shown himself more than capable of, at times, changing his mind, it seems, from the way the Bible's written. But certainly, if not changing his mind, certainly is capable of surprising us. And he's certainly capable of... of sending messages in a way to deliberately surprise us so that it can be an educational experience so that we can become better people. Mm. Last idea I had was that um, education is good because it helps us see beauty in more things. Mm. Uh, and I think that we last week you commented, Luke, that we, we've sort of neglected the arts a little bit in, in recent episodes. And, <laughs> and we've done it again today. And we've, we've done it again Because you're mentioning today. it now in minute 51. Yeah, well, we can trim other stuff out in the edit if we need to. We, we need to talk about it now. The idea that you see wonder and beauty in more things. And when you become interested in something, when, when, when you learn to play a musical instrument, you can appreciate someone else playing that instrument much. Even if you're not a professional musician yourself, you can access more what it is that makes... Galway, a fantastic flautist. Mm. Uh, so, and and having just being able to appreciate more things in the world. Yeah, I've got an example of that. I was listening to a really interesting piece of essentially musicology, uh, analysing some music and the way that it works. Just to mix things up a little bit, this was this was not James Galway on a flute. This was actually analysing a rap song that's been released in the last six months in the context of a little bit of a study of the the apparently there's a little bit of a a prominent batch of female rappers in contemporary music at large right at the moment and that that in itself is an interesting cultural observation this particular song it was being analyzed the rhyme sort of sequence was being analyzed and each line of the verse the rhyme pattern got increasingly complicated and matching it, the rhythm of where the rhymes occurred got increasingly intricate until the, the fifth or sixth line was a complicated two lots of three um, sort of rhyming assonance thing. And each one of the rhymes was occurring in a syncopated beat point in the, in the rhythm. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because as art, it's an art form that I don't regularly participate in. I don't regularly listen to hip hop all that much. And I was absolutely blown away to get taught something about its the, the cleverness of the construction. And certainly I could then appreciate it far more. I could see in it the... I could access the art in it. I could access the beauty in it. And I'm looking at a cartoon in front of me, Locke, about science. And it has two people who are who are discussing it, they're talking, having a conversation, and one of them saying, ah, oh, the problem with scientists is that you take all the wonder and beauty out of everything by trying to analyse it. And another scientist wanders into frame and says, oh, dude, my plasmoidal slime moulds have heightened pigment production. Check that out. They're yellow. That actually makes them zinc-resistant. Amazing. And um, one of the people <laughs> says, "Just it looks like dog vomit. Oh, yeah. F. Septica is nicknamed Dog Vomit Slime Mold. Cool, huh? Check out my slides. And the, the opening <laughs> character turns to their friend and says, okay, uh, never mind. What's wrong with scientists is that they do see wonder and beauty in everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a good correction of a common misunderstanding about, yeah. about science, which is that it's, it's a joyless pursuit. Yeah. yeah full of statistics which is just yeah. nonsense and and the, um, i i have some oh you go Ken. i was going to say and the and the equally damaging stereotype about the arts is that it's a pointless which pursuit. is that is that it's joyful. it lacks all technical yeah yeah it lacks all technical uh standards or yeah that it's just you know, a whole bunch required. of hippies there's no structure fun. there's no skill it's just mucking around yeah equally damaging stereotypes on both sides and i i have 
something of a summing up thought. Wonderful. Um, We're in need of one of those. If <laughs> if there's nothing more that anybody else would like to say. I, th- I think you should impose your summing up thought upon us, Luke. Well, I wouldn't want to assume that I knew that that was what everybody wanted. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, the summing up thought, I, I think, um, to bring it back into into a little bit of a religious context, is that the main value of education is is that done well, it makes us more like God. Because God, after all, has perfect understanding, perfect skill, perfect knowledge, perfect beauty. Um, and when we improve our ability in any of these areas... Uh, improve our ability to see truth, our ability to create, whether it's art or or or, or literature or, or or deep and scientific understanding. All all of these things are in 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 their own small way, bringing us closer to the nature of God, the nature of the beings that He created in His image. Mm. Education and that alone. Education lets us think his thoughts. Yeah, a little bit more. It, it, it a, a tiny little bit more, um, and that alone is reason enough. And to maybe pursue it. maybe not just think his thoughts, but feel what he feels, uh, to appreciate what he appreciates. I wonder mm. whether um, you might permit me uh, to lead on from that into a passage of scripture. And Please, Romans twelve. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you.